locked in a final desperate struggle against the undead guardians of this foul subterranean temple. The shadow sorcerer Voss realizes that the dead will not attack her. In fact, when she's accidentally injured, they move to protect her. But she has a sinking feeling in her gut. When the half-orc warrior Bren finally decides to join the battle, he joins it on the side of the dead. He has been possessed by one of the spectral undead guardians, who explains to her that they must make a blooded sacrifice, otherwise they'll all be trapped down there forever, meaning the undead guardians and Voss, because once she embraced the power of the temple, she has become one of them. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. Both a lot of things happened in the last session, and we weren't able to get through all of the material I thought we would. We did not get out of the dungeon, and I fully expected that there would be a, a short amount of time spent on finishing the, the final encounter within the dungeon, and then moving on. What, what really happened, though, was ahead of time, there was a curveball thrown at... Us, Joe, playing Bren, was unable to make the session. We had already moved and rescheduled and shifted sessions because of player absences and one of the realities of having a game filled with uh, grown-ups, with jobs and, and life responsibilities, is you, you have to have a, a means to compensate for player absences. We've been able to avoid it up until now, where we always played with all the players rescheduling. But because we had just done that... We would have been well over a month since we'd been able to play if I had rescheduled again, and so decided to move forward with four rather than five players. Thankfully, I knew about this a couple of days in advance and had the opportunity to think through how could I approach this in a useful way. There's really just two things you're able to do with a player absence. You can either have the character controlled by someone, or you can have the character not present. And then surrounding those two things is story. Is there a story rationale for the differences that occur from normal play, or are you hand-waving any of those differences? When you have the, the character being controlled, it, it's kind of to a lesser degree that you need to worry about the story explanation, but it's still there. My inclination is to always have a story rationale surrounding any differences that occur when a player is not present in the game controlling their character. Depending on the situation, I would always prefer to not have anybody controlling that character. I'd rather the characters not present. The reality is, though, that in my situation, it would have been very bizarre to not have Bren be present. It would have completely broken the story. The truth of the matter is that they're in an enclosed environment and they're trapped in there and they couldn't get out. And that was part of the dramatic tension. There's actually water flooding into the place. And if they don't get out in a certain amount of time, they're going to drown. So if I was able to just hand wave and say, well, Bren somehow is not with you. doesn't make any sense at all. And it's not my preference to do things that way. The other side of it is, okay, so you say, well, we have this character. He's present. Let's have someone control that character. 
I'm not a big fan of doing that either, at least in a way that is just about the character acting quote unquote normally, right? To say, hey, can someone run Brent's character alongside their own? The reason I don't like players to have to do that is I want players to focus on their characters. That's what they signed up for, really. Secondly, it's not really fair to the absent player. I certainly don't like to punish people for absences. As I said at the top of this, these are not absences that are driven by people being irresponsible. Quite the opposite. They're being very responsible. Responsible adults. And they can't make the game. That's fine. I don't want their character to have been messed with while they were out. Not that I think any of the other players would do anything weird with the character, but I just think it breaks the whole conceit of, of the game. Now, I don't want to have to control the, the character either because I'm the dungeon master and I am all-knowing and all-powerful. If I control your character, what, what does that mean? You say, okay, they're just going to be an NPC. That's fine. As a default, I don't I, I think that's probably the best of the options when you have to have the character present. But I thought I could do a little bit better than that, given the situation. And it caused a shift and a change in the narrative. And it also solved, I'm doing air quotes here, solved another problem, something that I needed to address. And I took an opportunity. And in so doing, what it it had sort of a domino effect on, on the story, causing us to never get out of the dungeon and really setting things up for the story going in a different direction. So because Joe was unable to make it, I made certain decisions about what would happen to his character and made other decisions to make that make sense that have put the Shadow Sorcerer in a very, very precarious situation. So let me walk you through it. Let me, let me talk through my thought process. I'm always looking for ways to ratchet up the drama and to make things just more interesting, more engaging, more creative, if I can. And I thought, well, I've established that there's undead in this subterranean temple and that some of them are not corporeal. They're spectral. They're, sh they're shades and shadows and essentially some form of ghost. And I thought, well, ghosts can possess people. Can I do something along that line, take dramatic license? Because of course, these were not ghosts strictly as designed in the monster manual. And can they therefore possess Bren? And I would have Bren hang back and be very quiet because Bren has a mission. Well, what would that mission be? I built up a narrative around why the dead were in this temple and why they couldn't leave and, and why they needed Voss and why they needed the party. I think I explained this in the prep session, the last audio journal, that they weren't going to attack Voss. They were going to consider her one of their own. Well, I decided to make it more about them really needing to sacrifice someone, but to really ratchet that up to say that actually Voss couldn't leave either. And this is the hook upon which everything pivots. This idea that Voss would be trapped down in the temple. There's a, a lot of time spent as the party plans and prepares to assault the final room. The druid Mir uses animal form to be able to scout through these. The, there's a, there's a, a cavern that's filling with water that's ahead of the final chamber. And they won't go in there unless they absolutely have to. They search the whole rest of the dungeon again to see have they missed something, and they haven't. There's no other way out. 
They spend their time designing a plan to get into this final room. There are certain physical arrangements about the entrance to the room. It's actually a collapsed structure from something above them, so it doesn't quite line up with the water and everything. Trying to climb into the next room is going to be fairly precarious. They do manage to come up with a fairly clever plan involving Mir's shape water to create an ice structure that lets them climb into the next room. It's not perfect, of course, but it gives them a little bit of a boost. There's a, a lot of cool stuff leading them into the room. Jaris, the brand new character for Grayson, replacing Calda comes up with a very, very cool idea to use Thunderwave to basically turn it around and, and use it to propel him into the room, and, and he manages to get himself and Voss into the room that way. That was definitely a function of the rule of cool. Such an awesome idea, such a cinematic moment that you have to say, yes, there's totally a chance this will work. They managed to get into the room, the whole party's in the room, everyone except Bren. And I think that the players assumed that I was having Bren hold back because the player wasn't present, which is kind of an unfair way for this to have gone down. The party would have been expecting Bren to be in the front line and would have been very suspicious had he not. I did other things where he, he said things that were very odd to try to clue them into him being a little more dangerous or potentially possessed. The battle is tough. I, there are a number of skeletons who are the remains of the dwarven party that Constantine is trying to find, and they hit a heck of a lot harder than skeletons normally do, and they have more hit points. I just added those on the fly. Again, I'm using more of a, a milestone-based experience. I'm just not paying very much attention to, to balance. I, I very quickly sketched out what these skeletons would be. Plus, there are shadows. They are the remains of former priests of Semyana from thousands of years ago who had been trapped in here. So the battle is going, and the party is doing pretty well. It's clear that they're going to win. It'll be close with some lucky rolls. One of them might go down, but it, it's really feeling like this is just a, a battle that will ultimately go in their favor. And that's when Bren does, in fact, come charging into the room, attack Jarrus. I wanted to make it so overtly obvious I actually had the spectral entity possessing him poke its head out of his back and speak with Voss, explaining that she could be trapped down here with them as well and they need to sacrifice them. She, of course, isn't going to let them sacrifice her friends. So while Jarrus actually prepares to do battle with Bren, she uses her Shadow Blade spell to assault not Bren, but the spectral figure who I had said is poking its head literally out of his, his back. I gave her a shot at that with disadvantage. She was, in fact, able to skewer the, the spectral entity and pull it free from, from Bren at which point he just collapsed. It was an interesting chain of events, because it's the the nexus of a couple of different storylines. Firstly, it's the it's they've beaten the dungeon, right? They've beaten the final monster beasties guarding things at the end. Second thing is these skeletons are the Dwarven party and the lead skeleton is wielding a broken blade. 
You may recall that the whole impetus for them going was that there was this shard of a golden blade that was found, which was identified as belonging to the lost dwarven clan Arkadin. Now Constantine has that original shard plus the rest of the blade, and it's proof that there is this clan Arkadin and that some of their members at least were here. They find the secret exit to get out. It's a statue of an ancient, ancient, ancient statue of Semyana, which is on uh, tracks and can be pushed. It's tough, but they manage to do it. They push it out so that gives them access to other places in the cavern and ultimately an escape. But the final thing is that Voss can't leave because this is the new horns of the dilemma. There has been no blood sacrifice. She is connected to the temple because she embraced its power. And now she can't leave. So I have this scene where essentially Semyana himself communicates with her through Globagul. You may recall the sentient gelatinous cube. And Semyana explains to her that he's not so bad, that in fact, before Anu was the singular god of the world, that he had followers and there's a greater threat that Anu waking is this great threat. And he must ascend to godhood again in order to combat it. And that this place goes back to the time before he was a servant of Anu, all the way back to when he himself had been something of a minor god. And others had trapped them here because they were enemies, and that their magic remained, and that the way out was to perform a sacrifice. And he tried to spare her from having to do it by having his undead minions do it. But now, if she wasn't willing to kill one of her friends, they were going to have to go forth, find one, bring them back here, and sacrifice them. And this creates a massive dilemma for her. Interestingly enough, the rest of the party seems perfectly fine with this. Yes, we will go and we will find very quickly somebody who deserves to die. Criminal, a bandit, someone who is less deserving of life, and bring them here so that they can be killed. She's really, really resistant to this idea, as you would expect most people would be. And we ended the session because I stepped in and said, look, I, I see that you are really struggling with this. So I just kind of stopped the game and said, out of game. What I don't want to do is put you in a situation where either way we're ruining your character. We're either killing your character or forcing you to do something that you feel loses that character to you. But as I explained, there has to be a payment. There has to be a cost for you having embraced the power of this temple. So why don't we end it here as a cliffhanger and then we have time before the next session and we can go back and forth on ideas on how to best handle this. And she seemed relieved and liked that idea. And we have been exchanging uh, some emails on the topic since then. But that was the end of the session. So we never got out of the dungeon, which I was expecting. But despite that, it was a very interesting session that was comprised of first planning to get into the final chamber, second dealing with the battle, the twist of both Voss potentially being trapped here as well as Bren's betrayal, which wasn't really Bren's betrayal. His possession is probably a better way to put it. And finally, this dilemma of needing a sacrifice in order to leave. There actually was this funky moment where 
Uh, Jarrus tried to pick her up and carry her out to just see, is it a function of she can't on her own walk out, but if someone else took her out, that was okay. And uh, for his troubles, I hit him with a, a lightning bolt that came close to actually killing him. And the panic at the thought of his replacement character being killed in this way, I don't want to say it was amusing because I certainly didn't want to see that happen either, but you know, it was kind of amusing. And so the end of the session is bittersweet. They have found their way out of the dungeon. They're not going to drown, but Voss cannot move through the barrier that was placed here thousands of years ago. She's trapped, and it seems like the only way for her to get out is for them to find someone, bring them back here, and have her kill them as a sacrifice so that she can escape. What worked? What didn't work and lessons learned? I think everything kind of worked, to be honest. There was nothing that felt really off. The one portion of it, if I was really digging down and assessing, is, as always, the planning phase. It's a strange portion of, of any of these games in general, whenever the players have to come up with a plan to deal with a sticky situation. And I'm talking about the initial challenge of trying to get into the final room, and should they get into that final room. They bounced around in terms of some of them saying, well, let's not go in there. And others saying, well, of course we're going to go in there. We came here to explore this. Once they decided to actually assault the final room, there was coming up with the plan. Very quickly, the final encounter was comprised of two basic rooms. There's the room where the flooding's occurring. I should say a cavern where the flooding is occurring. There's about 10 feet of water down on the bottom. And then there's the entrance to the actual final chamber on the far side of this cavern. The entrance is about 10 feet above the waterline, and the challenge was moving through the watery cavern, which the players were fairly sure didn't have anything dangerous in it, but I think they were paranoid enough to think there still might be something in there that would trip them up when they really tried to go through. What they were definitely aware of, though, was all of the undead that were in the final chamber and were on their guard. What they were trying to do was get across the water, propel themselves up the 10 feet, which was very slippery, so it looked like it would be a difficult climb, and get into that combat encounter in the last room in a way that didn't hobble them. One of the core ways they were planning on doing this was through the cantrip-shaped water and using it to form an ice structure that let them get up out of the waterline and into the final chamber in quick fashion. I think the, the cantrip-shaped water has given me pause, as seeming like it's pretty darn powerful for a cantrip. In the end, the way that uh, Bruce decided to use the cantrip felt like it was very much within the, the bounds of the spell and was not out of any proportion, so I was comfortable and we, we were able to land on the plan of, of their assault. Truly, though, in terms of what didn't work, kind of remains to be seen. As I said, I really hit this point of her being trapped in this temple very hard, and I'm not sure that works. It might be fine. It might be great. It might lead to things that are fairly awesome in the story, but at this point, I can't tell. This point sits out in limbo at the moment. Either this will turn out to be something that helps to define one of the main characters in a big way, or it'll be something that falls flat 
and it takes folks down a path that they really just were not looking to go down, and that is not an entertaining experience. What worked, though, was the combat with with the dead and Bren being possessed. Doing this podcast gets me focused on the game in a way that I would not normally be. Once I found out that Joe couldn't be there, I was obviously very disappointed, but A, understood, and B, looked at it as an interesting challenge. It's a it's a key topic. How do you deal with player absences? Well, this is how I dealt with this very specific player absence. And I think it was a hard one because, as I explained, I couldn't hand wave and have Bren just not be there, right? He was absolutely there. He couldn't get out. They were trapped. How could I maintain control of this character in a way that allowed it to, to not be me messing with Bren or not have me use Bren as a player, And I landed on this idea of digging into the existing story, finding a way to make him part of the NPC brigade, in other words, possess him with a spectral entity, and then mostly sideline him because this thing was just watching, observing them, waiting to see what they would do. And that really worked because the payoff was pretty cool. The The party didn't really see it coming when he betrayed them, when one of the greatest threat turns out to be one of their own. And then there's that dilemma of, well, what do we do now? Do we attack him? Do we save him? Or what's our agenda? In the end, Voss decided to save him, and thankfully she did, and she did it with Panache. And I think it really fit well with with her character, the way she was able to do it. It was kind of a cool moment. I see two lessons coming out of this overall. Number one, it's it is this idea of how to deal with player absences, that the best way is to have a story integration element into that absence. I think it works out the best when you can simply say, oh, this character's off doing something else. That has its limitations because either it's really bizarre that they would suddenly go off and do something else, or you know it's the start of something and you're you're going to paint yourself into a corner because what if the session started out with them in town? It would have been very easy for me to say Bren goes to do something else, but then the rest of the party delves into a dungeon and gets trapped in there and they can't get out. For the next session, when Joe is able to play... How do I get Bren into the dungeon with them in a way that makes any kind of sense? Mostly this idea of taking the character and placing them in another context doesn't work because of the nature of the game. So you have to keep the character in the party, but you have to do it in a way that serves the story. The second area of learnings is around Voss and the character arc that is being imposed upon her by this situation. Yes, she made certain character choices that led to this in terms of accepting the power of the temple, but now she's in an extremely difficult position, having to choose between her own life and that of an innocent, and caught in the bargain is her entire sense of self and morality and alignment and essentially who this character would be moving forward. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that this is something that you should tread upon lightly, especially when it's being done outside of consultation with that player. This is something that's simply developed as a function of the situation and the drama. Anytime you change and shift things, you can have consequences that come about. And really the biggest thing was 
watching your players and making sure that they're having a good time with the crazy nonsense you're you're putting out there. I think we are still having a very good time, and the feedback I've gotten from Taylor playing Voss is that she's enjoying the opportunity to try to come up with something that now expands and tells a, a better or a more interesting story for her as we try to deal with how can she possibly get out of this dilemma. There can be other ways to do it. It doesn't just have to be that they're going to bring her someone and they're going to kill them. There are opportunities within the religious or the the deity structure of of the larger campaign world. I don't want to say too much more about that, but there are opportunities, that things I can put in play, other allegiances that she can set up. I also think that there could be something that's a function of her being an Asimar. She has connections that mere mortals do not. And so this represents some other pathways, some alternate pathways for getting out of this place. For me, the core lesson learned in all of this is to take challenges and turn them into opportunities. When you have a player absence, see what that can do for the story in the moment. How can you solve that challenge in a way that takes the story and amplifies it? How can you use that to create situations that are in keeping with the characters as they stand, but integrates them more fully into the story in a way that makes things work? In this case, I used Bren's possession to really drive a social encounter that was nested within the the broader combat encounter, something I always like to do. Additionally, it set me up to really emphasize the moral dilemma and quandary that I was putting in front of Voss. When she seemed like she was stuck for what to do, use that opportunity to end on a cliffhanger, and, you know, we were right about at end time anyways. And then also, out of game, offer up the opportunity for her to be more of a storyteller. Tell me how you'd like this to play out. What are some thoughts you have on how we could really address this in a way that's dramatic and fun and potentially interesting for the rest of the game? I'm a big fan of everyone being part of the quote-unquote writer's room of the game. And I was more than willing to offer that opportunity to the players. And between sessions now, we're working out some stuff that I think will be very interesting as the game progresses and certainly for the next session. And that's it. A very interesting, compelling session that didn't go anywhere near as far into the story as I thought it would, but one that put a lot of great challenges in front of our players We had a very raucous combat where they were able to defeat a number of undead. We were able to get to the semi-conclusion of Constantine's search for Clan Arkadin, and I think give him just great fodder for future goals. He really glommed on to this idea of finding this clan, and now he has a potential magic sword in his possession if he can find a way to repair it. But most importantly, of course, we've set up what I think is an amazing moral and physical dilemma with Voss being trapped in the temple, and currently the only way out is for her to kill another person as sacrifice. That just warms the cockles of this evil DM's heart. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to help out at all, the absolute best thing that you can do is give us a review on iTunes. 
at this point, just looking to elevate the profile of the audio journal and get some other folks listening in. As always, you can reach out on Twitter at Anatomy Camp, or you can go to the Podbean website. You should see the link in the description and leave us a comment, or you can reach me directly by email at phil at campaignanatomy.com. As ever, thanks for listening.